0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And each fortnight one of us tells the other a story from Sydney's rich and fascinating history. Last fortnight I was the one telling the story. Jed, do you happen to remember what it was about?
1: It was about Shark Arm, the tail of the arm being vomited out by the shark.
0: <laughs> it was, it was. I'm not sure why it has an American accent, but...
1: <laughs> because it's called Shark Arm.
0: <laughs> that was the name of the book about it, right? Yeah, it's a sensational title for a sensational
1: story. Sensationalist title, I would say.
0: It's actually... It, the Wikipedia article, I, I, we see, seem to be referencing Wikipedia probably more than is healthy for a history podcast, but uh, it's also... Called Shark Arm, I believe. Other cases also just known, I think, quite often as the Shark Arm case. So it's not just the authors of the book.
1: All right. Well. Uh, anyway, yeah, you did the story of the the Jim Jim Smith. Yes, Jim Smith's arm that was vomited up in a spectacular show at the Coogee Pavilion Baths in the nineteen thirties, and we had a nice little chat about uh, you know, that Depression era Sydney, tangented onto a discussion of various transport services to Cronulla at that period in time as well.
0: <laughs> Indeed we did. I was just listening back to that for some reason recently. And uh, yeah, it amused me how excited you got about the, the different services to Cronulla.
1: <laughs> I was like, finally, this story is heading in the right direction.
0: To <laughs> <laughs> my main interest. Uh, anyhow, um at that time, I believe you gave me a clue that made very little sense to me. I couldn't make head or tail of it. And since then, I believe you've told me somewhat in confidence that there was no way I was ever going to get the clue anyway, because it was so cryptic and so obscure. So I'm not sure I necessarily have anything more to add. But if you'd like to be- begin moving towards your story by recapping this infamous I'm actually, clue, I'd love to hear it again. I've
1: actually made a decision not to recap the clue because it's impossible. But we will touch on the clue throughout the episode, which is an, another cryptic clue about yeah. the cryptic clue. Uh, so I will say that I'm sorry for the the difficult clue. Uh, I will confess to coming up with it on the spur of the moment and when I hadn't actually thought about the episode in any great detail, which meant that I didn't have any real substance to hang <laughs> the clue off and we were left with what we got. But I will tell you that we're heading out west today. We're heading far away from Kuji, home of last week's story. Mm-hmm. We're heading west across the Cumberland Plain, over the Blue Mountains, oh. and across the Great Divide. Oh, yeah, two
0: separate things I've
1: learned while recording this podcast <laughs> series. We're going to a little town called Wellington.
0: Oh, oh, I think you might have mentioned this to me before, possibly. What can you tell me about Wellington? Uh, does it have anything to do with duels? The jewels of the jewels uh, of the fighting with kind of guns slash weapons type.
1: Well, in an interesting turn, I would say that it's got one of my three stories has something to do with a jewel, and one of my three stories in a sort of tangential way has something to do with
0: jewels. Ooh, I, I didn't realize just how similar those two words sound until I uh, said it just then. But fascinating.
1: Well, you've stumbled stumbled across a double entendre. But before I begin. Today's episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast, which in my case is the Wiradjuri people. And
0: in my case, the Eora people.
1: And also the uh, land on which this episode's history takes place, which is the Binjung people of the Wiradjuri nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. So today I'm going to tell three short stories about the town of Wellington. But before I do that, I thought I might need to give a little bit of background to the town, as uh, in the preparation of this episode and subsequent discussions with people, it's come to my attention that it's not particularly well-known in Sydney. (laughs) I was just going to say, you might need to uh,
0: explain again to a city slicker like me where exactly Wellington is. I do believe it's quite a small town uh, at this point in in time and so possibly not on every single city slickers radar
1: yeah it's a it's a population's in the Mm 4000s and it's on the mitchell highway which is the sort of main highway heading west and it's 100 kilometers along the highway northwest of orange and about 50 k's before you get to dubbo okay you could go through orange and keep going and you'd get there yep you get to wellington and then another half hour you'd be in dubbo all right that's a pretty good summary Pre-invasion, the area was known as Binjung and was inhabited by the Radri people, and they still form a very large part of the town's population today. Okay, uh, so much so that the local community radio station is Binjung ninety-one point five. Cool. Have you ever listened to it? Look, I do um, tend to. Station hop as I'm traveling about the countryside. So I probably have, but I, uh, (laughs) these community stations often play a lot of country, which I like. So I'll often sort of settle on one, but I haven't specifically noted. But but you do get it where you are? No, I wouldn't, but But, I'd get it on the road. Nice. Okay. Mm. Cool.
0: I'll have to, next time I'm there, we'll have to go in search of this elusive radio station.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if it's online or not. Things, like with much of the country, changed quite dramatically for the, uh, the Binjong Valley in 1817 when john oxley uh who is the surveyor general at the time passed through the area on his way back to bathurst after an aborted mission attempting to navigate to the end of the lachlan river uh he was hunting for basically figuring out where the inland rivers of new south wales flow to mm-hmm. and two days shy of where the lachlan reaches the murrumbidgee he turned his uh voyage around and he said quote It is with infinite regret and pain that I was forced to conclude that the interior of this vast country is a marsh and uninhabitable.
0: Yeah, okay, I think I've heard about this before because they did keep hitting marshes, uh, which I guess in really dry years, after after multiple dry years, aren't quite as marshy, but at the time that they were hitting them, they were very marshy and they kind of figured they couldn't go any further.
1: Yeah, his next expedition ended up in the exact same... (laughs) situation but in a different direction in the
0: Macquarie by any chance yeah yeah
1: Um, so Oxley came to the welling well came to the valley and called it the Wellington Valley he named it for Arthur Wellesley who was the first Duke of Wellington um, and was a sort of celebrated figure of the British military at the time uh, having just completed a successful campaign at Waterloo oh yeah famous guy lots of places named after him well (laughs) there's a few coming up in this story So six years after that, in 1823, a small convict settlement was established at the junction of the Bell and Macquarie Rivers, and this is where Wellington is today. Okay. And the big gap in time between the river being named in 1817 and the town being established six years later was because Macquarie, who was governor of New South Wales at the time, had a policy of only allowing sort of official government business west of the mountains right so it wasn't until brisbane became the governor in 1821 that we sort of saw the rise of like the squatocracy um and the land grab west of the mountains where you had a lot of people just sort of getting as much land as they possibly could either through grants or just by occupation right. and getting stock on it
0: right but kind of yeah that that story of people just moving and claiming the land uh for themselves without official government planning
1: yeah, but it was typically well-connected people who could get away with it. Okay. So you ended up with like yeah, sort of established people in the colony doing that and becoming becoming sort of family dynasties that are some of some of which still you know survive today. But for that intervening six years period, none of that was going on. <laughs> After Oxley sort of came through, gave it a name, and left, there wouldn't have been much change at all for the locals. Nothing much happened. No one would have really cared that it had that name, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly.
0: But you said that he called, the, he called the area Wellington, or he called the where those two rivers met Wellington, but there was no town. The
1: valley. The valley was named Wellington by Oxley. Um, and he also named the Bell River. So the Macquarie River already had a name at that point. It was named by George Evans uh, in 1815, Great. after the governor, obviously. And then Oxley named the Wellington Valley, and he also named the Bell River, which meets the Macquarie at what is now Wellington, and he named it Bell for Brevet Major Bell who is a, another army man who doesn't have a huge online presence. So I don't think he did a great deal, but he was an officer in the British Army. Right, okay. And very much in the heart of Oxley. Yeah. Uh, and this might be a
0: naive question, but this valley, is this a valley that both rivers one, run through? One of them runs
1: through? Or is there a large area? It's a very wide valley. Okay, very so poor. when you look at it, it doesn't, ex- it doesn't immediately um, sort of occur to you that it's a valley, I suppose. It's not a river canyon kind of thing absolutely not okay um the sort the age of the of the blue mountains and western slopes and plains being extremely like geologically old Mm -hmm. means that there's not that many of those sort of river canyons compared to other places there are some uh the colo is one example but yeah especially west of the mountains it's much more like big wide valleys right because the erosion has just been going on for so long Yeah. So, in the 1820s, we've got the convict settlement that was established there, and we've also got squatters starting to appear along the rivers, and we've also got some Christian-run Aboriginal missions forming along the rivers, which are home to some of the displaced Wiradjuri, because of, you know, the settlement at Bathurst and all the subsequent development. And one of these missions was called Nanama Village, and it was actually the first inland Aboriginal mission in New South Wales, and it still actually exists today as a small village about 5 k's out of Wellington that's owned and managed by the Wellington Local Aboriginal Land Council.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: The 1820s were a terrible decade for drought, so a lot of those sort of very early settlers in the valley struggled a lot, and the convict settlement bailed out in 1831. Okay. And then in 1840, a village sprung up just north of the river, so across the bank from what would become Wellington, called Montefiores, and we'll come back to that later. But then another six years later, in 1846, the town of Wellington was gazetted. Okay,
0: I have two questions. Mm, the first on. one is going back a little bit: uh, the convict settlement. There, what what were the convicts doing? Like, was there a specific thing that, like, resource, or were they? Was there a reason why that was a place to set up a convict settlement?
1: Yeah, it was like a it was like a test farm, as I understand. Oh, okay. So it was like um, growing grain and crops. But I suppose, and I'm really you know beyond the scope of what i actually know here but i suppose it would be to do with sort of determining how best to do crop agriculture right in the western valleys okay that's a good answer but it was a failure because it didn't rain
0: right <laughs> after all of those reports of marshes which were there and then i guess with the- in the 1810s yeah.
1: yeah yeah and um it was also just a you know an out- outpost of empire i suppose you could say right. like a lot of um other exploration missions took off from not too far from here later on and it was important to have established presence out there
0: right and then uh, my next one coming to where you're up to in the story you're gonna have to explain to me what it means to be gazetted sorry because i don't really know what that means
1: uh it's just the f- official pronouncement of la place so it's their very first uh sort of village survey done okay. uh, with allotments marked out and roads marked out okay. and all that sort of stuff so it's sort of it's like if you consider like a what you know a big development company does in sort of western sydney now you could think of that as similar to what they were doing in wellington nice
0: like smashing the uh wine bottle on a boat and calling it a name but with a bit more planning going on because you've got to sort out yeah less glamour less kind of roguish charm
1: yeah, So in the 1850s, we had huge gold rush happening in Ophar and Hill End, which was sort of 100 k's roughly east of Wellington. But there were some minor gold rushes happening locally as well. We had uh, gold found in the alluvial plains of the Bell River and some other local creeks. Hmm. And then once that was exhausted, the miners moved to some nearby quartz reefs as well. Okay, but not huge amounts of gold. Not huge, but the whole west central west absolutely boomed in this period before that it had sort of been a bit out of the way but population growth skyrocketed and yeah development sort of came to the area i suppose and then though, the next big sort of step in that regard would be the main western line reaching the town which was in 1880 okay. and so there's been a train service from wellington to sydney ever since oh
0: does it still have a train station
1: it does yeah functioning train so station? the train from yeah that train that you caught actually yeah would have stopped in Wellington about an hour and a half before it stopped in Orange. Cool. Cool. Following on from your gazetting question, in 1885, Wellington was officially promoted from a village to a town. Ooh. And uh, it also gained its own municipal government in 1876. So a city on the grow.
0: Right. On the up. Mm. And I imagine possibly a larger population than it has now.
1: Probably not in the 1890s, but at some point in the 20th century. In fact, I'd say for most of the 20th century, it absolutely would have. Right. After the railway and the pronouncement of the township, Wellington definitely enjoyed its heyday around the turn of the century. And if there's one thing we know about places enjoying their heyday around the turn of the century, it is fabulous architecture of which Wellington abounds. Mm, you're really selling the place very interesting yeah i do like it i do like it there's lots of beautiful um 1890s and 1900s buildings they are in various states of repair and some of them are serving the purpose which they are built but probably more aren't they've either been repurposed or they're sort of empty or, or partly used but largely not but yeah there's a few big old pubs some old banks the train station's a classic central west train station they all look the same and yeah So lots of beautiful architecture. And the good thing is because the town hasn't really grown since then, it's retained that character Right, with a new air of decay about the place. But it's not one of those towns like um, Sydney where (laughs) all these new architectural styles have just been layered over the top and you're really sort of you know, pulling needles out of a haystack, trying to find a a building from a particular era. Right,
0: and really, really struggling
1: to get any sense of what it would have felt like, for instance, 100 years ago. Yeah, Wellington, you can really imagine it quite easily. So the next big change came to the area in 1950 when construction began on Burrandong Dam, uh, which was finished and opened 15 years later. Now, it's the seventh largest dam in the state and it regulates the flow of the Macquarie and it's about... 15 or 20 k's upstream from the town.
0: Okay, upstream. Okay, that means that the lake is on the other way, way up there kind of thing. Wow, it's not that far. 20 kilometers, did you say? Yeah, not far
1: at all. Um, What it does mean is that the river through town is completely regulated by the dam. Yes. So as you head further downstream, you get creeks and tributaries flowing in. That means if there's a big rainfall event, the river will come up. Because Wellington's so close to the dam, even during, like, pretty hectic flood and rainfall events, the river in town will stay low. Yeah, okay, because all they're getting is, le- like, less than 20
0: kilometres worth of rain.
1: Yeah, exactly. Unless the, unless the rain's so hectic that the dam's full and they're having to release, which is relevant at the moment. But um, unless that's happening, yeah, it's it's basically the river doesn't sort of go up or down. In wellington anymore
0: right which i imagine is quite sad probably doesn't look as nice as it would have
1: it, it is sad it's ecologically means the river doesn't function the way you know all the different sort of species that rely on the river evolved for it too which is coming up and dropping back down like that's the, what the rivers do because there's these huge sort of we get huge weather events and then periods of protracted drought yeah um so that doesn't happen and yeah, it's totally, totally changed the character of the river in town. Um, and it sort of means that the river in town refl- sort of reflects the air of decay of the architecture in town. It's sort of just a, a sort of somberness, I feel, about the whole place. Right. Both environmentally and sort of in terms of the, the, the human settlement there.
0: Yeah, because it's more so it's more of a like trickle, the, the river at
1: that point. It does vary a bit. It's definitely not a trickle because the reason the dam was built was partly flood mitigation, but mainly to facilitate huge irrigation schemes down um, further downstream than Dubbo. Okay. So all the water from the dam is released and sent downstream to these irrigation schemes.
0: Late, regular flow.
1: Yeah. It's, so it's not, it's not that it's low. It was low. It was really low last year, but it's It's not that low. It's just very steady. Right, okay. And like enormously lower than it would have been um, pre the dam building. So it has yeah, it has dropped a lot, but it's still a, still a large river. As I said, seventh largest dam in the state. Right, okay. So there's a lot of water coming out of it. Yeah.
0: A consistent, very, very consistent mm. flow.
1: <laughs> yeah. And uh, it also has like, I guess that's a part of the town's character as well. Is there's a big fishing club and a big like water wreck scene. Right. With jet skis and caravan parks on the dam and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That definitely seems to happen with those. Um, You do get a leak when you get a dam. You do. Um, There's four places you can cross the Macquarie and Wellington, which might seem sort of an unnecessary piece of information, but they have a bit of interesting history about them, so I'm going to dwell on them for a sec. The first one you come to if you're coming down the river towards Wellington is the Nanima Falls, which was a granite pinch point. So it's where the river shallowed out and it was would have been pre-settlement, one of the easier natural crossing points on the river. Mm, a Ford. But since then, it's sort of been like, you know, partially levelled and sealed. But you can still drive across it when the river's not too high.
0: Oh, okay. So that's not a bridge or anything. That's just a straight old school Ford. You just drive straight yeah. through the water.
1: yeah. Um, but when yeah it's also it's sort of like got a waterfall appearance to it okay Um, a very small one Um, and then uh, the next bridge you get to as you head downstream is the rail bridge which is a classic central west 1880s steel truss bridge uh they're sort of quite beautiful i was gonna say
0: i imagine you quite like that one
1: yeah it's nice single track then there's the main Mitchell Highway Bridge, which was built in 1991 following the collapse of the existing bridge, when a semi-trailer brought down oh, no. in 1989. So for two years, they didn't have a bridge. Then. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, And um, there's some great images of that, of that incident on the internet, which you should check out if you're interested. So that's an excellent point. The uh, army was brought in to deal with this issue. And what they did was they built a low-level bridge downstream for people to get across the river in those intervening two years. But that took a couple of months to get up and running and so in that intervening period people used the railway bridge to get across oh. and so there's some other great photos of people droving sheep across this single track railway bridge in 1990 wow <laughs> i
0: imagine hopefully there were no uh, bad instances of a train coming that someone wasn't expecting while they were crossing the bridge
1: i like to think that it was carefully managed yeah I think uh, actually people are pretty
0: good at figuring that out. Given that the army
1: out. was there building a bridge, I'm going to say it was. <laughs> also, the
0: trains don't come that frequently.
1: No, we we're just uh, one, one a day in each direction at that point. And the other thing that's interesting is that the steel from the original highway bridge that collapsed in 1989 has been turned into an eye-catching sculpture oh, on the highway. Cool. And I've driven it past it countless times and wondered about it. And it's, um, it's a really interesting sort of like a community art piece about what people think of the town and different elements of the town. So if nice. you do drive past it, definitely check out the big weird sculpture.
0: And it's made of an old bridge. Mm. Cool. So it sounds like a fascinating town.
1: Yeah. So I, sh- I should probably add at this point that we went there extremely recently, John and I, in part two, investigate for this very story. But also because I go there for work a fair bit or through it, and there's all these little things I kind of want to do but don't end up doing. Right. And so we decided to go on a day trip And, um, yeah, let me indulge my uh, Wellington fanboy. I was going
0: to say, I'm I'm surprised that he let you get away with that. Did you have to bribe him (laughs) with meat pies?
1: Uh, (laughs) um, We have already had the pies in Wellington, and they weren't, uh, in John's opinion, worthy of a return visit. But there was a uh, sort of... (laughs) neo-classic neo-american like diner vibe place that is a little bit tacky but really good food uh so i said we'd go there but we got there and they were closed because they're changing owners so that was a bummer
0: so was John a little grumpy the whole time just trying to think how how it would go if i dragged the whole family to a small town we went to to
1: a uh big beautiful turn of the century pub in town called the Federal Hotel and had an excellent pub feed for lunch nice. so no complaints excellent anyhow um,
0: yeah okay so you've been there recently you had a
1: I've been there recently I can field your questions <laughs> um so these days Wellington's considered pretty out of the way it's a sleepy town with an abundance of big, old, barely-used, turn-of-the-century buildings. It's known on online tourism websites for its pretty riverside park, which I suppose is true. And as I mentioned, it's got a big Aboriginal community. Yeah, It's generally seen as a more socially disadvantaged part of the Central West, and it has the dubious honour of being one of the many, many towns and cities across Australia that has at one time or another been dubbed by the media as Australia's meth capital. Oh, Okay. In a particularly uh, punny ABC News headline from 2015, they called it the South Pole.
0: Oh, I see. Because of the ice. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. I didn't think that ABC were into that kind of slanders.
1: I was a bit surprised to find that in my searching, to be honest. But there you have it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like this kind of thing ha- happens where you have a, a country town where the indigenous people are displaced. You have a kind of booming town for a small amount of time, all the wealth of... the uh, kind of is drained out of it people all move away leaving the indigenous population in a town that's then kind of left and in a really bad position and then obviously i I imagine the town's not entirely aboriginal so you also have the kind of disadvantaged people who were left there when everything else pulled out of it
1: yeah yeah but i mean as, as you've already noted i do quite like it um and there's a lot of different sort of interesting shops and restaurants the pubs are lively um the history's right there in your face and for me like um sort of some other towns around that have a similar history of of a big boom and then a sort of steady decline and grenfall's another one um you kind of what i like about them is you don't need to squint to imagine what it would have been like 100 years ago it's yeah it's right there
0: yeah the architecture is still there
1: and in terms of new growth industries about a decade ago two huge prisons opened just north of town okay um which i heard led to a bit of a boom in the town both through the new job opportunities that were created but also because people whose loved ones were imprisoned moved to the town to be nearer to, to visit, them yeah i think that again like happens quite often that you the prisons
0: get placed in uh, kind of rural areas because it's Cheaper property.
1: Yeah. And then more recently, there's been a huge new growth industry in town, which is what takes me there more often than not, which is renewables. Cool. So there's a huge wind farm just north of Badangra, and there's a 72,000 panel solar farm across the road from the prisons. And you can see that from a few different spots in town. Cool. Um, and there's a bunch of other solar farms under construction in the area. And the cool news from the last 12 months is that the state government is investing in new transmission infrastructure to take power from the what they call the Arana region, which is sort of greater Dubbo, I suppose, to the Hunter. Okay. So it's possible that in years to come, the area around Wellington could sort of be like the Hunter is and the Blue Mountains are now in terms of big focus of power generation for sydney and newcastle right only without the whole greenhouse gas thing yeah that's
0: cool so where the coal yeah coal from the hunter area in the blue mountains is currently powering electricity it could be these renewable farms out out in this area near wellington
1: yeah and i mean in terms of sort of more immediate out like uh, implications for the town it's definitely been inundated with construction workers for the last sort of Twelve to twenty-four months, and that'll keep going, which you know keeps the cafes and pubs busy. And the motels are actually like quite expensive Hard to because motel in- yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and also, even during COVID, there's all these backpackers around. Well, I don't know if they're backpackers, but they're people doing like um, sort of a low-skilled construction kind of t- t- jobs t- and speaking in mm-hmm. European accents. So it's sort of funny stumbling across that in the Central West when you know, by all accounts, that's a part of Australia that's sort of died off a bit um, since. whole border closures. Yeah, interesting. So
0: there are quite a lot of people who've been to Wellington recently and know about it. They just might not be people that I've necessarily talked to recently.
1: Yeah, and also a lot of the construction people do get bussed in from Dubbo. Okay. Um, And I know one issue in Wellington is that with a big town, just like literally it's only half an hour away, a lot of sort of services don't happen in Wellington because they're just there right so if
0: you need to go to hospital or see a doctor or whatever it is you might need to go all the way to dubbo
1: yeah yeah um so that's wellington in you know what are we up to in 20 minutes or so and i feel like i kind of the only thing i need to sort of say apart from that is that i probably need to bring this back a bit to sydney since it's the name of our podcast and so i think for sydney the importance of wellington is as a rural service center you know, growing produce, sending it back to Sydney, going beyond Sydney, blah, 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 exports. Um, and also, as I mentioned, a transport node on the journey further west. So for the early explorers and settlers, that was just a handy river crossing point. Um, and then it became a Cobb Co. stagecoach stop. Then the train station, and there's also a good siding in Wellington uh, with grain silos. And obviously now it's, um you know, a full, fully functioning highway service center.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that... Whenever I look at the historical images of Sydney or think about Sydney as a very industrial port town, you, you realise just how much the um, agriculture and industry of inland New South Wales really was the, the fuel behind Sydney's growth as a city. It was it was the kind
1: of the port where that stuff was being stored and sold and exported. Yeah, and I, I guess that's not like really as, nearly as much the case anymore. So it's easy sort of thing to overlook. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it
0: it is easy in Sydney to feel completely disconnected from other parts of the country or over the state where where previously I think that wouldn't have been the feeling so much.
1: Mm. So that fairly long intro brings me to my first of three stories.
0: <laughs> all right. Now that we've got that out of the way, we can start the story. Now that we story. know
1: where we are and what it's all about, we can start with the stories. So... Uh, to touch on my clue, this story is the one that uh, is about a hidden vault locked away for thousands of years.
0: Okay. Uh, is it something to do with indigenous art?
1: No. Great guess, but no. This story is about the Wellington Caves Complex.
0: Oh, okay. okay. So, uh, and that's
1: one of the many limestone cast cave systems that's across the Central West, uh, the most famous one. is Nolan which- Caves. Thank you. There we go. You're on board. I know that they're limestone caves. <laughs>
0: I got interested in stones for a while
1: <laughs> well i uh, i've been wanting to go to the wellington case for a while but you have to kind of do it as like a like a one hour package tour thing mm-hmm. and it didn't excite me and so but this was the chance to just go and do it and we did it and it is a bit hold on to the handrail watch your step please but um it's also really cool yeah and if that's the way we sort of have to allow people to be able to access it so that it isn't ruined then you know so be it yeah nice so it's in a strange little complex off about five minutes out of town off the highway. And it's right next to a Japanese garden, an eighteen hole golf course and a caravan park. Bizarre. Okay. <laughs> totally. So it's just just there. And this isn't Janolan
0: Caves are kind of in quite a spectacular mountain valley kind of thing. There's there's kind of escarpments all around you as you then go into these caves is this in a more kind of rolling hills area
1: yeah this is this is a rocky outcrop in a paddock okay it's you you could you could walk past it you know a hundred times and not not even bat an eyelid it's totally unremarkable but what you wouldn't know is that underneath the ground is very interesting exactly okay yeah So the caves are 400 million years old, which I think might make them our oldest story from Sydney. I would say they definitely are. (laughs) (laughs) By an odd 400 million years. Yeah. Yeah. Give or Um, take a few hundred. when, When they were formed, the area was actually a coral reef. So there's lots of marine fossils in the limestone. Yeah. Although I found out only crustaceans because fish hadn't evolved yet.
0: That long ago.
1: Wow. Yeah. And the caves were definitely known to the Binjung mob, but there's no evidence that any First Nations people actually went into the caves, which uh, definitely isn't to say that they didn't.
0: Right. There, there, there's no um, kind of paintings or engravings or anything inside them that would show that they were used for certain purposes. Yeah, exactly. But that's not to say they weren't used for other purposes that didn't leave permanent mark.
1: Yeah. And I guess there's also no continuing oral history that's made its way out. Right. But yeah, but all these things don't, aren't really definitive. Um, but the first European to explore the caves was probably someone associated with the convict settlement that was there in the 1820s. But the first person to actually write about the caves was Hamilton Hume of Murray River fame, uh, and that was in 1828.
0: Okay. I've always thought it would be a wonderful feeling to accidentally stumble across a massive underground cave complex. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't think <laughs> yes. many people get to experience it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, so, two years later, in 1830, George Rankin, who was a local magistrate, and Thomas Mitchell, um, who was a well-known explorer and surveyor, later to become surveyor general, discovered the first megafauna fossils ever in Australia, in the cave. That's
0: cool. But hang on. A mega. But you said there were just crustaceans around, so... Oh no, so hang on. So these are megafauna. These are like recent megafauna that had gone into the
1: caves and died in there. Yeah, yeah. Not fossilized uh not fossilized in the limestone. Right. But um yeah, died and maybe 15,000 years old or something like that. Something yeah, like something in in that general range. Yeah. Under a million years, let's call them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they found a diprotodon Uh, which is like a giant wombat. Okay. uh, A giant kangaroo and Megalania, which is like a giant goanna. Cool. Um, And no cave complex would be complete without tacky, giant concrete models of the megafauna that were discovered there.
0: Otherwise you wouldn't be able to understand what what those uh, fossils... Well, no, they weren't fossils. What those bone findings meant. Mm.
1: So, our tour went inside Cathedral Cave, which is so named because of the huge altar column, which is a stala- columns stalagmite that has reached the ceiling. Okay. Um, and it gives us off, you know, holy vibes. So much so that the chamber was actually home to the first Catholic Church of Wellington. And uh, they had their services down there. Inside the cave? It, inside the cave. Wow. And the um, minister climbed the climbed the the column formed out of limestone crystal and gave the service from like a sort of pulpit up there oh wow yeah and so we remember them in the name obviously cathedral cave but also because they undertook the dubious action of dumping dirt into the cave to create a nice solid floor for the congregation
0: oh gosh hmm and i'm quite intrigued by this um this column that was a kind of ascended to to speak from a pulpit did they have a kind of spiral staircase around it to get up to the pulpit
1: it it's not that high but it's it's quite layered because it's just naturally formed that way so there's actually like a natural sort of staircase made of crystal okay um i will post some photos on the social media. I should say that I've taken a lot of photos and there will be quite a few photos posted, um, around the time this episode comes out on our social media. So if you want to see any of the stuff I'm talking about, check that out.
0: So this is a very
1: unique, uh, church then inside of it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a shame they couldn't, you know, not ruin it for everyone else (laughs) and just enjoy it. But, um, yeah, so the caves are, it's a steady 18 degrees down there year round And they're formed by surface water flows and also movement from the water table below, eroding the limestone, basically. And then you get these crystals forming from water dripping through, causing stalactites or stalagmites. Yeah,
0: beautiful. I imagine I've been to the Caves a few times and it is very beautiful. Mm. And and nice and cool.
1: Yeah. And so there's ongoing work in the cave um, that we went into from Flinders Uni looking for more fossils and bones. And once you get... 43 metres down below the surface in the cave, you reach a clear blue well, which is actually the water table. Wow. And it's fed by the Bell River above. And so apparently when the bell dries out, the water table drops significantly. And when it floods, the cave sort of um, fills up, not completely, but rises significantly as well. Nice. Nice. And there's 40 known caves in the Wellington cave system uh, and probably very many more. And some of the more recent ones have actually been found by the Sydney Uni Speleological Society, one of which was an underground cave accessed through that well that I looked at.
0: Wow. And so those societies are allowed to kind of explore, but they would have special permission and know what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all um, sort of managed by the council and in partnership with these different unis. But um, they even were saying that they do like carols down there at Christmas time sometimes, and the odd like you can get you you can art, apply to have your wedding down there and wow. like other functions of that sort of ilk, which is
0: cool, I suppose. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of nice to make use of something that's that beautiful as long as you have precautions in place not to damage it.
1: Yeah, um, and there's actually speaking of damage, a piece of heritage-listed graffiti in the cave. Oh yeah which is the name of James Sibbold, uh, who ironically was the first caretaker of the caves, and he wrote his name by holding a candle to the limestone crystal to blacken it. Oh, gosh. Um, and uh, as you'd expect, there's also quite a lot of non-heritage listed damage uh, that occurred in the intervening period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it sounds like these are
0: a cave um, complex that are quite uh, used by the local population for all kinds of purposes.
1: Some of them are. So a couple of them are accessible on tours. Most of them are not. Right. But they have been open over the sort of last 200 years. Yeah. So that's your cave. That's right. your uh, secret vault locked away for millions of years. Yeah, uh,
0: that's really interesting. I like it. It's also nice to yeah know about different cave complexes that aren't the General caves, which is kind of the first go-to for so many people, I think. And I had a quick question about the bones of the megafauna. I imagine that they're sadly probably not on display or stored in the area or are they
1: they aren't on display there i'm guessing here but i think they're either in sydney or canberra
0: yeah I would uh, one of the museums Being sadly taken away but that, i mean that's that's significant and very interesting the megafauna are pretty fascinating
1: yeah and before they were found there british australian society would have had no idea they existed
0: right because the only way you would know is through the kind of uh, oral history of the
1: aboriginals Yeah, until you found some bones. Yeah. So our next story is set roughly 400 million years later. (laughs) Roughly. (laughs) Uh, In the early days of Wellington, when the main settlement was just across the river at Montefiores, which I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. In 1841, a staging post uh, slash pub was built in the village to serve the growing traffic that was heading west. And it was named the Line of Waterloo in honor of Arthur, Arthur Wellesley, the Wellington man, going on, yeah, who um, highly respected, but never went, never went to any of these places.
0: I imagine it would have been quite the world tour if you had to go to every outpost of (laughs) empire to visit the Waterloo slash Wellington themed.
1: Well, it's yes, but I think it's also a bit sad, and it's like a common thread in Australian place naming convention. The, The most obvious example being Sydney.
0: Yeah. He just didn't care.
1: They just didn't care, and like our greatest river, the Murray, he never went. Yeah, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like
0: yeah, it is. Maybe we we do need we definitely need to relook at some names, give them some.
1: Mm. At least with the Macquarie, you know, Evans named it after him, and then as soon as he could, he was out there.
0: Yeah, he had some kind of interest running Mm. a
1: church service on the banks of it. Um, so the back to the line of Waterloo pub, it was famous for. It's now famous for two reasons. So one is being, it claims the title of the oldest continuing run pub west of the mountains.
0: I love it. The, the west of the mountains kind of tag.
1: Yeah, well, we both know there's a lot of pubs make a lot of dubious claims about this sort of thing. But the cool thing about this one is that it's actually in its original 1840s timber slab building.
0: Okay, that's impressive
1: yeah it's been looked after but as far as like that era of australian architecture goes it's sort of a it's an outlier
0: yeah that's a very old building for australia
1: yeah and you can go you know it's a pub so you can go right in there's no like i oh, book a tour or uh, some private property it's just go on in nice. um and they've also got a lot of little bits of history up on the wall and you'll love this No pokies, TAB or Kino. Wow. Mm.
0: You know what I would say if you had to do a clue for an episode about somewhere that's been pulling beers for over 150 years. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) That might be the one.
1: (laughs) Well, you didn't guess it then either. (laughs) I wouldn't
0: have got it that sounds lovely i'd love to go there this sounds like a great place
1: it's a great pub it's a great pub it's got a fire and you know open fire in there in winter and good vibe but um i can say that even though they don't have a tab if you go to the much more spectacular turn of the century federal hotel in town where we had a pub feed uh there's a very lively tab scene there on a saturday arvo
0: I, i hope probably quite a lot of pokies as well
1: Yes. Yeah. It wouldn't be an Australian pub without. Them. You can't soundtrack your lunch without people shouting at the TV and the pokies ringing in the background.
0: Yeah. A good feed.
1: Yeah. Um the second the second reason for the fame of the Lion of Waterloo is another contestable claim. This time it's that the pub lays claim to being home to the last pistol duel held in Australia. Yeah, this is the one you this mentioned the to one. You before. Yes. This duel occurred in 1854 between two local residents, Samuel Curtis and B. Sheridan, and it was your classic barroom fight. If you were going to duel someone in a pub, Alistair, yeah. what would it be about?
0: So um, I am having to, you might have guessed, do a little bit of a leap in imagination because dueling in pubs isn't really something that I'd necessarily see myself doing. <laughs> but. Uh, What if one of your mates was to start a pistol duel in a pub? If I were a man of fiery temper (laughs) and hot blood, I would uh, imagine if if someone had looked at my Sheila the wrong way or if someone had uh, stepped on my new leather shoe.
1: Well, you were quite right with your first guess. And... um... They were indeed fighting over the ownership of a woman. And uh, in you know, classic 19th century style, we don't know much about her. She's just known as Mary. And a title that seems to have been bestowed on her probably since as this sort of uh, story grew in legend is that she was the mystical maid of Montefiore's. Oh, wow. Yeah,
0: <laughs> quite, quite the lady to have a pistol
1: duel over. Yeah, exactly. Well, the two lads stepped outside. They both misfired with their pistols, uh, which was quite common at the time. Yeah, and I suppose why you could have pistols in the first place. Pistols were (laughs) a popular thing. And the two men made up their differences and returned to binge drinking at the pub. Oh wow!
0: (laughs) So it was a bit of a non-event in the end. Uh, forget about it. Well,
1: it was, and this is why I think its claim to the last jewel in New South last jewel in Australia is potentially tenuous because uh, the last what is generally uh, more widely considered to be the last official jewel was held three years earlier in 1851. and that was between Sir Thomas Mitchell, surveyor general and megafauna discoverer, right. And one Sir Stuart Donaldson, and that altercation took place in what is now Centennial Park and was apparently instigated by Donaldson, because he wasn't pleased that the town of Tenterfield in northern New South Wales had been gazetted by the Surve- Surveyor General on his land grant. Oh,
0: okay. So yeah. gazetting comes back into it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. And um, I can I can say now that I am yet to be challenged to a duel in the line <laughs> of duty. Hey, you over
0: there! <laughs> I don't like the way you're drawing up lines on my land.
1: Uh, well, you do get a bit of that. Yeah, I imagine you no do. Pistols, yeah. I mean, absolutely. it's
0: it's quite a it's a big thing drawing up lines on pieces of land to say who owns what and what they're going to do with it it's
1: always a relief when there's no one else there (laughs) just get out of there (laughs) get in get out yeah so in that case between mitchell and donaldson no one was injured but mitchell did shoot donaldson's hat off um and donaldson went on to become the first premier of new south wales
0: yeah see it's quite it seems to be the thing the thing to do if you're kind of high-up gentlemen in society, a bit of dueling. Yeah. To show your kind of risque credentials, maybe.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So I think the two, like, you know, (laughs) drunks from Wellington probably didn't make the official dueling registry. Mm. Um, But the pistols from Mitchell and Donaldson, I know I'm way off from Wellington here, but the pistols that Mitchell and Donaldson used can be found in the National Museum in Canberra.
0: Okay, so it has some... Uh, degree of official recognition than this jewel.
1: That's the 1851 jewel. Oh, sorry, the Wellington the one 1854 jewel. Re- you're talking about, one in, um, duel. Was talking about the one
0: related to Sydney in Centennial Park.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I figured while we were here, I'd cover I'd cover the what is probably more likely the last official jewel.
0: Yeah. Well, we are all about getting the facts straight.
1: Mm, absolutely. But uh, <laughs> I'll tell you who isn't. It's the residents of Wellington who love to celebrate this part of their town's folklore, with regular reenactments. Oh, that's quite
0: cool. <laughs> yeah. So do they have kind of like vintage pistols that they
1: fire blanks with? Oh, I think it's just point your plastic gun and, you know, wear your funny <laughs> hair <laughs> kind of thing. It
0: sounds great. When do they do
1: yeah. it? Uh, well, there's been, there's been at least two in the last 10 years, so okay, we'll stay tuned. Yeah, nice. So that's the story of our famous fight. I love it. All right. So my third story is from the 20th century. And it's definitely the most vague clue reference I gave, which was the attempt by man to summit the highest heights.
0: <laughs> I think this is where I thought we were going to the moon. You did, uh, but we weren't. But oh, but I could have been like about the park's telescope or something. Not
1: telescope, the uh, park's dish. What do you call those dish yeah. things? Yeah, I haven't. That's another Central West thing I haven't done yet. Um, huge source of personal shame for me. Have to get out of there one day. But uh, no, we're not going to the moon. We are, that would have been a great idea. But it's not that close to Wellington. Um, instead, we are summiting one of the peaks immediately to the west of Wellington. And you'll be pleased to know there's two peaks in what is now a nature reserve immediately west of Wellington. And one's called Mount Arthur and one's called Mount Wellesley. Oh. So that's the two names of the first Duke of Wellington. <laughs> he didn't, didn't like those ones either. Never made it. No, not interested. <laughs> they really went all out with the naming. They, it's, it's staggering. So M- Mount Arthur is the more prominent of the two. And in the 1920s, as the age of auto tourism began, um, people in Wellington decided that it would be need to be a top priority to get a road built to the top of it to promote tourism. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds about right.
1: But no one sort of stepped up to pay for that until the Great Depression hit and the government unemployment relief scheme added it to the roster.
0: Yeah. Fair enough.
1: And so we had the Governor-General coming out to Mount Arthur in 1934 to turn the first sod on the new road to the summit. Okay. But it was actually four years before the second sod was turned.
0: What happened in the intervening four years?
1: (laughs) Yeah, not sure. But um, what I can say was that the locals weren't too happy about it because in that period, the roads to the top of uh, both Mount Panorama in Bathurst and Mount Canobolus in Orange were both started and finished. Oh, wow
0: right so actually all of the central west roads to top of mountains uh happened in the depression era
1: yeah and they were just like literally just tourism projects they didn't serve any sort of other function except like people might want to drive to the top of this mountain so let's bang a road in yeah Yeah, well, stimulate the economy. Yeah. So construction began in 1938, and a camp of 50 men was built on site to build the road. And one year later, the growing war effort meant that the workforce actually was diverted away from a sort of like this fairly frivolous project. Um, And they were diverted away to something that the then Minister of Transport, Michael Bruxner, who was coincidentally also from near Tenterfield, and is the namesake of the 420-kilometer-long Bruxner Highway, mm-hmm. declared was of more material value than the uh, road to the top of Mount Arthur, which was the road from Parks to Yeovil.
0: Okay, and why was the, par- the road from Parks to Yeovil so important?
1: Well, I don't know, but it does go past the dish. So what I'm wondering is, was that built yet? Or I did wouldn't that come have later? So,
0: but I don't know much about satellite dish technology.
1: Mm. but otherwise it would have just been facilitating movement around the central West because, you know,
0: I guess it's probably more important than getting to the top of the Sightseeing Hill.
1: Yeah. It's worth noting that that road literally went nowhere functional. So I think they were like, right, we'll, we'll seal this other road so that, you know, people and goods and what have you can move about.
0: But still, Bath has got a road to nowhere and Orange got a road to nowhere to the top of that pretty mountains. And
1: Well, if they hadn't have pissed away that four years between the first and second sods, they could have too. Yeah, we'll never know what happened in there. But that could have
0: been (laughs) government. That could have been red tape. Who knows?
1: Oh, it definitely was red tape. And so when construction stopped, some townspeople were worried that construction wouldn't restart again. And they turned out to be absolutely right. And so there still
0: is no road to the top of the mountain.
1: <laughs> There's still no road. There's a road that goes halfway up. But I think the joke's actually on Orange and Bathurst.
0: Right, because actually they've lucked out. They've got a nice, pristine hill.
1: Yeah, and in the 60s, a local bushwalking club built a small walking trail along the original surveyed alignment. Oh, so nicer. you can still access the summit of Mount Arthur quite easily, but you just need a little nice 2K bush stroll lovely and then you get up there and there's no cars or asphalt that sounds wonderful which is a fate long since lost to mount Knobulus and uh obviously particularly mount panorama
0: struggle to find any area that's not covered in asphalt
1: Mm. so that's it alistair that's the stories of wellington um and as i mentioned i got loads of photos so uh get on the social media Things that we run and have a look at those.
0: Wonderful. Well, it sounds like a very beautiful place, a really interesting place, and I'm glad you're spruiking it and here telling us all about it so that we can maybe go there sometime in the not too distant future. I would like to emphasize that, to the best of my knowledge, you are not officially paid by the town of Wellington to spruik it. You just are a genuine. I constantly
1: get accused of being paid to spruik things in various content I produce. (laughs) And as of yet, no one has ever paid me to spruik anything. We're definitely anything. not important
0: enough for anyone to ever care about what we like or don't <laughs> like. So this is just genuine, heartfelt love for, for the town of Wellington.
1: It's the same level of passion that gets me constantly being accused of sarcasm.
0: Yeah, I like it. I, it sounds like a great place. It sounds very interesting. And I would like to go there.
1: And I hope you will forgive me the very tenuous connection to Sydney. In this Yeah, I was going to be rude about
0: that. Uh but I tried to hold it back.
1: Well, I did petition for the name to be Stories from New South Wales, History of the Harbour City State, but <laughs> you didn't like think it sounded good.
0: <laughs> yeah, look, we'll be, we'll get back to Sydney in a fortnight.
1: Well, it won't be in a fortnight because we are actually taking a uh, much-needed brief hiatus from this season. Um, so I believe, Alistair, you intend to say that We'll be getting back to Sydney in uh, a few months. Yeah, now that
0: you bring it up. Yeah. So, we actually will not be getting back to Inafona. We are taking a break, mainly because uh, I am expecting uh, my second child very soon, which is very exciting. And also because I've been struggling so much with my first child and doing some work right now, and also trying to look after my uh, pregnant wife who's been going through a lot, looking after a lot, and moving to. Uh, this country with me so uh, Jed has been doing all of the editing all of the social media uh, a lot of work for the podcast and I very much appreciate that Jed so thank you for doing that and it's definitely a well-earned break for you uh, and yeah yeah for both of us while we uh, go through the first little while of having a newborn baby and then we'll be back
1: Yeah, well, I've been really enjoying this season so far, and um, it is nice getting to listen to all of our stories over and over and over again as I uh, (laughs) cut them down to size. And, yeah, very excited to uh, meet the newest member of the Taylor clan in uh, a few months' time or (laughs) whenever that's happening. Well, whenever he decides to come, yeah. And, yeah, we'll be back on the, the virtual airwaves at some point later on in the year so that wraps up our last story from sydney for this half season and hope you enjoyed it alistair and everyone else and uh yeah we'll see you in a few months time for our next story from sydney